Welcome to the National Disability Services Sector Development Podcast. I'm Fiona Still, the Victorian NDIS Sector Transition Manager, and I'm here today to discuss NDIS reviews and the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, commonly known as the AAT. I'm joined by our studio guest, Senior Lecturer and Director of Engagement at La Trobe Law School and co-author of the AAT NDIS Decisions Digest, Darren O'Donovan. Thanks for joining us, Darren. Great to be here, Fiona. NDIS participants have the right to seek appeal of a decision made by the NDIA through the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Not all decisions are reviewable by the tribunal and participants must have followed the internal pathway for reviews set by the NDIS Act prior to applying for reviews with the AAT. Some of the NDIS decisions that the AAT can review, including whether someone has met the access criteria, the supports they're in a plan, whether to review a participant's plan, or whether to appoint a plan or a correspondence nominee. Darren, can we start today by you telling us a little bit about what the Administrative Appeals Tribunal does? So the the key word to start with with the AAT is that it's an independent body. So its role is very much to be that last step after you've pursued the internal review processes, you arrive to this independent voice. And the distinctive thing about the tribunal, even compared to a court, is that a tribunal is modelling NDIS decision making. So a court audits for legality, which is actually quite a narrow process. But the AAT Act, the legislation that sets it up, it commits the AAT to finding the preferable answer. So if you take that road to the tribunal, what you walk out with is not a finding that the agency have done something illegal. You will walk out with a decision because the tribunal member is standing in the shoes of the original decision maker, the original planner. And he or she is asking, what was the preferable funding level? Is it correct for this person to be ineligible for the scheme or should they have access? So that's a really, like that is a tremendous commitment that when you're given a right to go to the tribunal, you're being given the right to a good, deep quality check and a real full process check on the decision. What I would say as well with any course of legal action, it's very important to note that this is not necessarily a confrontation um, and it's not necessarily a finding of error. Like when we, a lot of tribunal decisions reflect new information that's emerged in the process of back and forth between the agency and the participant. And when we look at current NDIS tribunal cases, the dominant reality is settlement, constructive settlement. So it's not that you have to be, uh, I would encourage participants not to be fearing a confrontation because inbuilt into the tribunal is a process of conciliation. We begin with sharing information and case conferencing before we ever get to a decision. Fiona as well, that when I'm introducing the tribunal, I do want to speak to the reality of the scheme's rollout and maybe what the tribunal experience has been so far for those who've pursued it. Um, I think the agency has worked very hard to reform its planning process 
and it's in particular had to react to very critical reviews by the ombudsman on its review systems. Um, and there's no doubt that so many people had that experience where they got felt they got lost in the review process, the internal review process. There's a difficulty where people get mixed up in the various forms of review and the agency itself got mixed up in the various forms of review. And it, the timelines blew, sort of blew out. And then it was very hard to get to the tribunal inside a year. And the tribunal itself noted that it was taking up cases after the plan elapsed. So it was having to sort of travel back in time uh, and go back to a plan that had elapsed. And it's still encountering that dynamic. So there have been tremendous on-the-ground difficulties about getting cases into the tribunal. And one final point I'd make as an introduction, like we've said in your introduction there when you were saying what decisions can be reviewed, and I have said you have to pursue the internal review process, which for many people has been disappointing uh, in terms of timeliness. When the AAT makes a decision, Darren, does that establish a legal precedent or what influence does it have on future decision-making of, say, the NDIS? The tribunal decisions are not formally binding in the in the way court decisions are. As I sort of indicated earlier, they're basically examples of very often legally trained experienced experts modelling how decisions should be made in the NDIS. So it is one of the reasons I've we've taken up the mantle at La Trobe to try and write this digest is each decision needs to be read carefully. You need to look at what was specific to the individual, what factually about this person, did they have family support, all of those various circumstantial factors. You need to look and identify what parts of the decision were drawing on that factual matrix. But then when you get into a, a tribunal decision, the most interesting part is when the tribunal takes a legal stand or interprets the COAG principle or interprets the phrasing of the NDIS policy. That is the most persuasive part of the decision in terms of that can have systemic impacts because the tribunal is not entitled to make a legal error. So if the agency look at a tribunal decision and they see something they regard as legally unsound, they should challenge it. They haven't quite done so. <laughs> so yet we have three federal court decisions uh, or like judicial reviews of the tribunal, uh, McGarrigal being the most sort of famous or, or most prominent. But that's an important point because the AAT is the first arena where we have an independent expert interpreting the legislation, taking a stand on the agency's policy. But as it relates to an individual circumstance. circumstance. So we always have to take that into account. And just as, you know, if someone goes into a planning meeting and obtains 30,000 in funding, and maybe they have the same level of disability as another person, and the other person gets 5,000 less, 5,000 more, that happens at the local level. It can happen at the tribunal too. But what we need in the scheme is that we are consistently individual. Like if you think of what we're all chasing, it is always interesting to see people complain about 
what they see as inconsistency, but also highlight the importance of being person-centred. So it's about having policies that make sure we approach everything with the same set of glasses, the same set of lenses, but that we are always looking at the individual. So it's individual differences, but they can predict what the outcomes will be or what the process will be or Mm. the decision-making. The factors, the tests, the standards, you know. So it does a nationally consistent scheme. Yes. I mean. <laughs> Which is what we're all after. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we can see how that, that will impact the NDIS. I've got here, I'm thinking policy, but really is the practices, that the, mm. the decisions that the tribunal make where it's based on that legal interpretation, mm. what's written in the NDIS Act, what's in their rules, what's in the operational mm. guidelines, that's where there's that opportunity to have that uh, influence on NDIS practice. Yeah. And I think if I just, I think it would be helpful at this point to actually discuss some decisions, I think. So if we talk about policy influence, like one of the first things I'm questioned when I talk to, you know, the community involved in implementing the scheme, uh, I always get the, the, the health NDIS boundary. So let's take, maybe let's take that one in terms of an example of the tribunal coming in and telling us how to approach that borderline between the health and the NDIS. So we had a case in October, Medcalf uh, and the agency. And it's a fantastic case for um, laying the table on how we judge health versus NDIS. So there was um, two pieces of equipment that the family in that case wanted funded. The first was a portable suction pump and that was found to belong to the NDIS. The second was a, a heavy-duty nebulizer, and that was found to belong to health. Just this, we've struggled for a number of years trying to sort of make things concrete for people on the ground. Why is it that a nebulizer is different from a portable suction pump? So let's look at the pump first of all. That was found to be NDIS fundable because of its connection with activities, with participation. So Mr. Medcalf, who had complex needs, he already had a suction, a suction pump in his bedroom, but it was immobile. So it didn't meet the reasonable and necessary of allowing him to participate in social and community activities. Yeah. I mean, all he was getting from that stationary suction pump was a basic health outcome. It was directed at making sure, managing health risk. When he, and it's always very important to start with the participant because it always starts with an ask. So when he asked for the portable suction pump, he saw that as key to his plan goal. And it's always very important to think carefully about how your goals are written because the, uh, Mr. Medcalf had as his goal greater, more rewarding relationship with his family. That was what was on the plan. And what would this portable suction pump allow him to do? It would take him out of the bedroom into the family space. It opened up that form of social participation that was central to his plan. So I always think the legal phrase, if we come back to the boring old law, what's in the COAG or the NDIS rules or in the COAG principles? The phrase is, is this piece of equipment integrally linked to participation? And that integrally linked 
is exactly what this portable suction pump was in my view. It was part of that. It was the starter resource that was adapted to allow him to go out into the world. To live an ordinary life. Yeah. Now with the nebulizer, to give the opposite, because to set the line, you kind of need to show the, the thing that's on the other side of the line. With the nebulizer, that was the way the tribunal member framed it. That nebulizer was all about a baseline health outcome. And that's an interesting phrase in terms of it was a piece of equipment which was directed at preserving health. It didn't have that integral link. It wasn't sort of outward facing like that portable suction pump. It wasn't adapted for people to go out and use in the community. And it's interesting to think around a lot of the time people, the the NDIS planning process, what's quite difficult about it is it does involve people sitting down at the kitchen table and thinking possibility not just need, <laughs> you know, not just what do we need to get through the next year. It's how do I get there? Um, and that is a really, really complex thing to do at a kitchen table. You know, we're all working at, at that in terms of getting people to consider what's out there for me. So relating to their goals, but also mm. the myriad of ways that different people will want to achieve those goals. Mm which, you know, relates back to your point where someone might have $5,000 difference but similar disabilities because the way we want to achieve our mm. goals is different. Darren, can you tell us about uh, whether you've seen evidence of the NDIS acting on AAT decisions? Yeah, I mean, and I do think it's really important that, you know, as a lawyer, I want to be really respectful to people at the front line. Um, and I think it is key that you know, if the, it's great that the tribunal is setting it right. It's vital that we take the tribunal and feed it into on-the-ground practice to get it right, which is, that's the ideal situation. And it's interesting that the early versions of the operational guidelines always cited AAT decisions. So even if you go to the access operational guideline, the main policy document on access, Mulligan is still referred referred to in there. Um, I would say that the agency has sort of not, it hasn't refreshed its guidelines and sort of incorporated direct references to the tribunal as much. Um, I think it's very clear that in areas like health, that um, in the first quarterly report for this year, they specifically mentioned that tribunal decisions were leading to changes on the NDIS health boundary. So we discussed MedCAF and the agency contested MedCAF. You know, they contested the suction pump, um, but they clearly adapted to the answer. There was another decision, which was the Maisie decision, which was the Nurses on Wheels decision, which I think every, it was on the front page of The Australian. I think Rick Morton reported on it. Um, that was another that they had in mind when they were, I, I think, when they were talking in the quarterly report. So you see there that the tribunal has had a systemic impact. It's fed into the boundary and the agency has had to report on those cases and adjust. The one flashpoint at the moment in terms of are there instances where the tribunal is criticising agency policy and the agency hasn't quite translated or adapted to the tribunal rulings? The one area is the transport guideline. So this will be well known to participants and service providers. We are all very familiar at this point with level one funding, level two funding and level three funding. And the operational guideline of the agency has created 
an onus on people. So if you are travelling for employment supports, you might get an exceptional level of funding. That's the current take. You have to argue the exception. But what's really interesting is that any time or most on most occasions when the tribunal has confronted the operational guideline for transport, it has been very critical of the way it's written because policy is not law. And the tribunal is very worried that level one, level two and level three, framing it like that is distracting us from the reasonable and necessary test. So in the most recent case of Ewan, which was taken by Victoria, the Victorian Legal Aid uh, NDIS team, we see senior member, or we, we see the tribunal directly saying we're not going to apply these levels. We're, I'm concerned that they are actually distracting us from assessing this person and their circumstances and whether their request is value for money. So it's very interesting to see that's Ewan, Parosh and David, three cases where the tribunal has pushed straight past the three levels of funding. And that, when that's teamed as well with uh, quite a critical finding in the federal court in the McGarrigal case in 2016, transport is one area where we have an awful lot of law now. We have a federal court, we've got a large number of tribunal decisions. And I do think it's time to rephrase the guideline and what we should do is make sure that decision make it's it's very prominent that exceptions are welcome i think they are welcome in terms of the primary thing we need to focus on is not necessarily these numbers that we've put in the policy but look at the individual and come back to the act come back to is this value for money like if we starve a 19-year-old of transport funding to the extent that they don't get to university, that's not what the scheme's about. And I think in fairness, if the agency was in this room, they would say there's always space for an exception. We want our planners to be comfortable, but we just need to make sure that the actual documents that are in front of planners really flag that it's legislation first the figures are a bit of a signpost about, you know, this is usually we'd have to think hard if we're going past 3,400 or 3,600. That's fine to say you, you need to think a bit harder about going past it. But we do, in certain circumstances, the tribunal is telling us we do need to go past that figure. That individual need in transport is critical. And we're finding that we mm. see that all the time. You know, someone who lives in the inner city, transport needs are very different from someone who lives in outer Gippsland mm. and just the sheer volume and distance that needs to be covered mm. uh, as well um, as different need. One thing I think about transport is I like to call transport uh, a turn the key support because sometimes I feel with the NDIS when we're modelling cost, which the agency does very well, right? They know absolutely, every, you know, there are lots of graphs, lots of typical funding amounts across each level. But the thing about transport is that it turns the key for the rest of the plan. And we mustn't segment the planning process by saying the usual amount for transport is this, the usual. We need to consider 
that some supports go beyond an individual line item. That for someone in Gippsland, transport is the key to using all their supports because they're going to have to travel to get those supports. And when we look at the underutilisation issue, which is a massive issue, which I spoke about at the state conference around um, particularly the geography of underutilisation of approved NDIS funding. People fight through these processes, do all the evidence and then don't spend the money. Why is that? Because they couldn't get to their services. Well, that's de- I, th- I suspect that's one dynamic. That's definitely one dynamic. I think underutilisation is such a complex issue, <laughs> like, uh, but it's a really critical one that we need. I think the truth of the scheme lies in that getting behind that underspend of approved money, particularly for Indigenous people and particularly for rural and remote people. And painting that picture will tell us what we need. And I suspect it's a very human story. As much as we like to talk about data and actuarial tables and big things in the scheme, this is a really intimate scheme that we need people at the coalface communicating what's happening and then build that into a bigger picture. Can you tell us about some of what are the lessons for NDIS planning meetings of the decisions that have come out of the AAT? Well, I think when I have two minutes left anywhere and I'm speaking to participants or to service providers, I really encourage people to not be defensive about what they're asking for. Talk about the benefit of it. I think a lot of people worry that the agency is watching cost. And it's worried about cost. And we hear all, we read the media and, oh, there's a cost blowout in the scheme. And the NDIS, they also want to hear about benefit. And talking to service providers in particular, the one thing that service providers can do for their existing clients or prospective clients is just give them the evidence base for the service that they've been receiving or the service they're going to receive. Because we need to escape that. The way to escape that cost conversation is to say there are benefits here that make this a fantastic investment. If I get this bit of support now, I'm going to be in a job in two or three years. And I think it's incredibly important that service providers invest that bit of time in saying, look, let's look at the people who've used our service. What are the good stories? What are the outcomes from our from our service long you know in two, five, ten years? What is the the but for benefit of our service? And what I mean by that but for benefit is if people hadn't gotten this service, what would have happened to them? Would they have ended up in the justice system? Would they have not maybe got employment? Mapping the outcome is key because that's half of the test. And I think, We know that the agency very closely monitored cost, but my concern about the scheme as a whole is we we talk an awful lot about cost in the scheme generally, like the media hammer the scheme on it's costing a lot of money, but we need to be passionate about outcomes because unlike an awful lot of government uh, programs that I see, this has an inbuilt value for money test Not a single dollar is given out under the NDIS unless it's value for money. So this is an investment project. 
let's talk about what it's delivering. And that's part of what the Productivity Commission said in saying we should have an NDIS is that we can't afford not to have it. Mm. And it relates to what are the outcomes on an individual, but a social and also on a a broader Australian context Mm. of the NDIS. Yeah. Yeah. And I think from what I worry about is in the tribunal case law, I, I do see some service providers who it hasn't been a pleasant experience for them. And I think this is something we need to watch as we move through the scheme where plans are reviewed. Are you delivering outcomes? What are your systems for documenting outcomes? Because I think a lot of participants, they need to show up at their plan review and show progress. Are we documenting progress? And there was one case, LYJJ, where the documentary records, the goals of the service being provided, there wasn't any system in place for identifying those. And the tribunal had a look and said, well, these two hours, there's no evidence base for these two hours. You haven't given us the evidence. The agency wants to invest in outcome. And it's sometimes disappointing that when I go to research outcome, what we currently have in the scheme is a little interview with participants. It's subjective. It's a Likert scale. I don't know. You see it in the, I've seen it you in see the, it in the quarterly report. reports. And my concern is that we, all of us who are pretty passionate about the scheme, which is everyone involved in it, um, I think the key to making sure that this grows is we need to be able to go to politicians and say, here are the employment outcomes in an objective sense. Here's not just subjective participant feelings. Here's the number of hospital admissions avoided. And we need to map that. And I think that's the thing we need to develop or else we're going to continue to have this conversation about cost. I think when we look at um, the the challenges that people have experienced rolling out the scheme, I know that it has been hard to lift lift their eyes up from the, you know, the, a lot of the paper pushing, the demands. Um, but again, we have to come back to the original concept, come back to the idea of investment uh, and approaching this as a piece of infrastructure, you know, <laughs> that's going to serve us into the future. It's an exciting prospect. If we get it right. Darren, if people are are assisting NDIS participants or potential participants to prepare for either a review or to go to the AAT, what are some of the tips you would give people? So I think it's very important to have a good idea about what the agency, the language the agency itself uses. Um, And I had an experience, I was out in South Australia with the NDS team in South Australia And those early sessions that we did, we did a number of workshops. I put up a slide and I used the agency's phrase, which is when we are assessing value for money, we are looking for supports which will help achieve life stage outcomes. And I will never forget because I was saying, look at this phrase. This is really important. When you're in the planning meeting, you need to talk about life stage outcomes. Hand goes up. That's very well, Darren. What is a life stage outcome? And this is an example of the process of translation that we're all trying to engage with. Now, to me, a life stage outcome is 
it isn't necessarily defined off what a person who doesn't have a disability, what they would be achieving. But it's very important to be event focused, to milestone. Like what makes a good, what makes a good goal? It needs to be measurable and there needs to be, there need to be milestones. Um, so whatever outcome you're looking for, it needs to be something you can measure and there need to be milestones. And I, I, I do think um, being positive and not defensive is the way to go in the planning meeting, you know, um, recognizing that they're very difficult. And so it's kind of interesting in the sense, would I recommend going into the operational guideline if you're not a lawyer ahead of your planning meeting and worrying about the various phrases in there that could take away your funding? <laughs> you had insomnia. Like, yeah, you know, good but option. what you do, what you control is your ambition and setting those goals and being ambitious about those goals. And those goals need to be valued, you know, and that's what the scheme is about. And those goals in terms of that ambition is also looking at your movement through those life stages mm. and what's the capability that you want to build now yeah. as a high school student so that when you're looking at employment options, you've had the foundations to mm. move through those life stages. And that is interesting in terms of... Um, how plans build on each other is going to be something we see going into the future because you don't and if you are like I think it's very important to um, I think people will have no difficulty establishing long term goals but we also need to be very professional about how we milestone them through three, four, five plans to that long-term goal. So that brings us to the end of our podcast today about NDIS reviews and the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. I want to thank Darren for coming in and sharing with us some of his knowledge and experience. If you want to know more about the NDIS reviews process and the AAT, please visit the NDIS website or the AAT website. You can also find the AAT NDIS Decisions Digest on the La Trobe University website, www.latrobe.edu.au forward slash LIDS. And if you have any questions about this topic or any other NDIS related question, please get in touch with the National Disability Services team via our NDS help desk, www.nds.org.au forward slash help desk. See you next time. Is your organisation a member of NDS? National Disability Services is your peak body for service providers across Australia. Our members entrust us to represent them and to unify our collective strength to fight for a more inclusive future for people with disability. Join today via nds.org.au and uncover a range of supports that will assist your organisation navigate the challenges and opportunities of the sector. The Sector Development Podcast is a production by National Disability Services. The podcast is produced with funding from the Victorian State Government's NDIS Transition Support Package. 